Welcome to Supporting the Spectrum, the Thompson Center's podcast series on all things autism. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date information on autism research, services, and supports. I'm Gina Randolph, faculty in the Special Education Department at the University of Missouri and part of the Training and Education Division at the Thompson Center. With us today to talk about anxiety and autism is Dr. Carrie Noel, psychologist and assistant clinical professor in the Department of Health Psychology here at the University of Missouri's Thompson Center. You hear the term anxiety used a lot to describe like, oh, I'm feeling nervous or worried about something. I have so much anxiety about this upcoming thing. Can you start us off by just better defining anxiety, particularly what's meant by anxiety in the clinical sense, and then also describing how that might look for an individual with autism? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you made a good point. So we all feel anxious at some point, right? So you might feel anxious if you're about to do a talk in front of 100 people. You might feel anxious if you've got a big test coming up, which actually can be very helpful because it helps to motivate us. It helps us to do the prep work, to do that presentation. But when that type of anxiety, so when I talk about anxiety, I'm talking about specific fears of something, kind of that feeling of dread or unease or worry, when it starts to impact your functioning across settings, so it starts interfering with your ability to be around people, it starts interfering with your ability to sleep at night because you're so worried that you can't stop thinking about things, that's when we start to think about it as more of a disorder. So in individuals with autism, when we see anxiety, it may look very much like the type of anxiety you would see in someone without autism. It can often look like atypical things. So perhaps you're seeing these significant fears of specific stimuli. So people with earrings might induce a fear response. It can look like crying in in response to specific things. It could be that fearful affect where a child clearly looks fearful. It could look like increased clinginess, so difficulty separating from caregivers. But it can also look like disruptive behaviors, and I think that can be confusing sometimes. So it can look like increased temper tantrums, self-interest behaviors, hair pulling, scratching, biting yourself. And then it can also look like increased difficulties with transitions or increased difficulty being around other people. So... Bottom line, anxiety can look like a lot of different things. And so I think it's really important to monitor your child's behavior and look for any changes because that certainly could be a sign of anxiety. The example that you gave really resonated with me from the start. As someone who does do presentations, I can think about, oh my gosh, yes, right before a presentation, I start to I start to dread doing it. I start to feel a little bit panicky and overwhelmed by things, but it doesn't prevent that next step for me kind of like getting over that hump and getting out there and still doing what I need to do. And you just gave a rich list of what it might look like for an individual with autism, but knowing that that presentation can kind of span from typical to atypical, can you describe some of those pieces of what does just a typical response to anxiety look like? Yeah, so a typical response to anxiety may be physical symptoms. So maybe you're having stomach pains or stomach aches, difficulty sleeping, increased nightmares, 
uh, you could see sweating, heart palpitations, kind of panic attacks that people often describe where they feel like they're about to die when really it's more of an anxious response. Avoiding social situations if you've kind of got that social anxiety piece. Maybe not being able to do presentations because of that fear of evaluation of other people. And so going back to your example, Gina, where you may feel anxious going to talk to people, but you you still do it. So it doesn't stop you from doing that presentation. But for a person who's got an anxiety disorder, it really would stop them from doing that. And they may need additional supports or accommodations to do something like that successfully. That makes perfect sense. And I've definitely, unfortunately, seen that impact pretty frequently with individuals with autism that I've worked with. How common is it for individuals with autism to also have an anxiety disorder? So it's incredibly common. There are estimates, and this really depends on how it's measured, um, and we'll talk probably talk about that in a little bit, but a most recent meta-analysis estimates that about 40% of youth with autism have at least one anxiety disorder diagnosis, and that increases to about half the adult population of autistic people. And so if you think about general population, the estimate is about 7% of non-autistic children might have an anxiety disorder diagnosis and about 20% of adults. So that's a huge, huge increase in terms of risk. It is. And let's go ahead and dig into some of those pieces now. Is the rate different across developmental ability as well as age? So there is not an easy answer to that. And the reason is it really depends on how it's measured. And it's also dependent on or it's also impacted by how we measure anxiety in people. And so what I mean by that is many times there are children with autism who really can't verbalize their feelings or they can't identify I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling scared. And so what we find is it is more likely to be diagnosed in children who have higher IQ and cognitive abilities and maybe more language. But that doesn't mean necessarily that anxiety is not present in children who do not have language and higher IQ. And if you are involved in research in the field of anxiety and autism, we are really trying to find ways to better identify and conceptualize anxiety in children who may not be able to verbalize those things. That makes perfect sense on why some of those behavioral markers that you described of the fearful affect and being crying, why those are so important to be in tune to. So in hearing you talk about these pieces, it's my assumption that this is something that really should be looked at clinically and diagnosed separately from autism and isn't just necessarily lumped in and treated to the overall yes, this child has autism spectrum disorders. There may be anxiety as a part of it. Treatment's the same. Yes, that would be my take on it. But I do want to point out that there are some different fields of thought. And so there are some people who would argue that anxiety symptoms are just part of autism. So it doesn't warrant a separate diagnosis. The other end of kind of the thought spectrum would say that individuals with autism have anxiety, but anxiety looked or should be diagnosed when it looks exactly the same as people who do not have autism. Yeah, so the middle ground, and this is where I would say I stand, is that anxiety does happen in children with autism. It may look different and it may not fit really neatly into a diagnostic category. So oftentimes you'll see more unspecified anxiety disorders, but it is really important to identify it when it's happening because the treatment is going to be different. 
And I would argue that a lot of times the symptoms of anxiety become more of a primary target for intervention because it can impact functioning to such a significant degree. That makes sense. Let's jump right to talking about treatment then. What is best practice for treatment of children with autism and anxiety? Unfortunately, there's not as much research in terms of treatment for children with autism when we're comparing the research to children without autism. However, we do know that there is a substantial amount and growing amount of support for using something called cognitive behavioral therapy in children with anxiety. So that's where we're focusing on the connection between someone's thoughts, their behaviors, and then that kind of physical response. It takes a lot of modifications depending on the child or the adolescent. So it really needs to be individualized to fit the person's needs. So it could, for example, include a lot more visual supports, written scripts, social stories, those types of things. And then I would argue the other really important piece for children who have autism is parent involvement. So we know that children with autism often have times generalizing skills. So you can imagine how learning these cognitive CBT types of approaches and strategies in isolation won't necessarily translate to when they're home and perhaps being faced with that stimuli that results in that anxious behavior. And so involving parents is really, really a key part of that intervention. And going along with that, too, I would argue that psychoeducation is equally important. So having caregivers learn about anxiety, learn about what the symptoms might look like, having everyone on the child's treatment team or in their support network, understanding what are symptoms of anxiety and how to respond to those can be very important because oftentimes Very well-intentioned people that care about this child may inadvertently reinforce that anxious response, and now we're actually making that anxiety worse. So escaping a stimuli when we're really trying to do some graduated exposure and get them acclimatized to it, for example. That's a really comprehensive approach to helping support kids through this. So both going through the therapy, also just kind of that background foundational learning and understanding how to be a responsive caregiver around it. Are there other recommendations that you have just in general about setting up an environment or how to make sure that those triggers for anxiety are a little less triggering? Yeah, absolutely. And really taking a step back, I would say that if I'm working with a family who has an anxious child, I would say one of the first lines of intervention would be looking at the environment and looking at the supports in place. So are the supports matching the child's needs? So are there any unidentified learning difficulties or language issues? Do we have a really good sense of what the child's strengths and weaknesses are so that we're really aligning the environment to support them. It could be making the environment more predictable. So we know, for example, transitions to middle school or high school come with just such massive changes. And so it's not unusual for children without autism to become more anxious in those settings. So making sure that we're also proactively putting those environmental supports visual schedules, practicing walking the halls, knowing where their locker is. Those can be really, really helpful in preventing anxiety, but also alleviating it while we're doing the treatment at the same time. 
Something else I think that I would also consider kind of environmentally is working with family to see what's going on with them. So are the parents experiencing more stress for some reason? Are they getting appropriate respite support if they need it? Because many times parent stress can bleed over into a child's experience, which is not blaming parents in any way, but sometimes parents just need a bit more support because how we respond as parents can make a difference to our child. Of course, I think any parent listening is like, yep, uh uh-huh. Yeah, I've experienced that for sure. So for caregivers who might be concerned that their child might have anxiety, how do they go about getting an evaluation? Are there things that they need to do to prepare for the evaluation or a certain type of provider that they should be seeking out? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do think in autism, anxiety presentations can be pretty complex. So I would say seeking out to the best of your ability a provider that has some sort of background in neurodevelopmental disorders. So whether that's starting with, it could just be starting with your primary care provider. It could be starting with, you know, a developmental pediatrician. The reasons I'm mentioning those medical providers is oftentimes there can be underlying medical conditions that look like anxiety. So thyroid disorders oftentimes can result in some anxiety types of symptoms. Unfortunately, some types of medications like Benadryl can make people feel anxious or appear anxious. So I think getting that medical piece can be incredibly helpful, making sure you're ruling out any other underlying medical issues. And then working with a mental health provider. So that could be, you know, a BCBA, so a behavioral, more behavioral therapist, a mental health provider that is used to providing cognitive behavioral therapy for children. It's really hard to find mental health providers. And so ideally, you would want to find someone that has a lot of experience with autism, knowing how to modify those CBT interventions, the cognitive behavior therapy interventions to fit the child's needs. Sometimes that's not always possible. So calling around and asking about different therapeutic approaches, for example, you know, working with a therapist who might prefer to use play therapy, for example, as an intervention, is not going to be the most helpful thing for a child with autism who has anxiety. So I think interviewing and asking just general approaches and what their kind of first thought would be about how best to treat that. And if they can do cognitive behavioral therapy, most mental health providers who have experience working with children can modify it to meet the child's needs. So that is a really wonderful approach, and I wouldn't have considered that first step. So first step, medical provider, just help me rule out what else could be going on here, and that also might be a good entry point to find that appropriate referral for your child. Then as a second step, searching out those counselors, those psychologists, those BCBAs who either have that background, like you said, in autism or cognitive behavior therapy, that's a great comprehensive approach to just getting started with this process. So just as one final question, I always like to ask this before I wrap up. Do you have any go-to resources? And and for this, I'm thinking more specifically right now about that general education piece that you talked about for parents. You know, if they want to learn more just about anxiety and how they can be supportive in a situation, do you have any resources that you recommend for that? There are some great online resources that have some really nice current information So Spark for Autism, so that's S-P-A-R-K-F-O-R 
autism.org. They have a series called Discover, and they have three-part series on anxiety in children with autism. And it actually includes a link to a webinar from Dr. Hardin out of Stanford. So that's an excellent resource. One of my go-tos, to the extent that I can do it, is hearing from individuals who have autism and what their experience has been. Now, I want to throw out a caveat with that because many times the people that we hear from who have autism are people that have more language abilities, and so they are able to kind of express those things. But I do think it's still really helpful for parents to read that and kind of hear what it's like from their perspective. There's one book by Nick Dubin, or I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's called Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety, A Guide to Successful Stress Management. The reason I like that one is because in the appendix, it's got an interview with his parents about anxiety and stress management. And so they reflect back on his experience as he was growing up and the types of things that he had to go through to kind of cope with the anxiety piece. So I think that was, I just love that. I love that resource. I think it's really, really nice. Um, It's called Asperger. We don't use that name anymore, but I still think it's highly relevant. There's also another resource that I like to give families who may have children that don't have as much language, and it's by Timmins, T-I-M-M-I-N-S, and it's called Developing Resilience in Young People with Autism Using Social Stories. And so it's not anxiety specific, but the reason I like it is it's a really nice example of social stories that this family used to approach more challenging situations and give them some coping skills. So I think it's a really good way to illustrate how a family might go about designing their own social stories to cope with anxiety producing situations. Those are wonderful resources. I especially love the one that you pointed out that gives both the perspective of someone who has gone through the experience, but also the perspective of the parents. That's such a rich and powerful resource to start with. Yep, I agree. Dr. Noel, thank you so much for your time today. You are very welcome.